Support for this podcast comes from Blackline and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Peter Kivikidis. I'm the CFO of Squarespace. You're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 232. As a finance leader, are you driving driving change? How are you driving change? In this episode, we speak to Paul Auville, CFO of Proofpoint. Uh, Our our cost to acquire new customers is quite high. It can be as high as a a number that's roughly equal to that first year of annual subscription between sales, marketing costs, the cost of the channel that will help us engage with the customer. So I can't really afford to churn that customer every year or my financial model will never scale you know, on the income statement or cash flow uh, basis. Listen to our complete interview with Paul after these words from our sponsor. Many accounting and finance professionals are facing a sizable obstacle these days. In this age of data enlightenment, their financial close processes leave no time for data analysis. The very activity that opens the door to new opportunities and career advancement. Blackline has the answer. By automating, centralizing, and streamlining financial close operations, Blackline customer organizations are now ready for the data-centric world, allowing their finance and accounting professionals to open the door to new opportunities. To learn more, visit blackline.com forward slash CFO. Hello, we're speaking to Paul Allville, CFO of Proofpoint, an email security firm that just came off of 51 consecutive quarters of growth. Uh, Incidentally, we should mention that Paul holds three patents in digital video compression in Japan and one patent in the U.S. for high-speed PCI-compatible on-chip data bus. Well, we might have to ask you a little more about that to fill us in, Paul, but first, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Paul, uh, you have such an interesting background. It's a little different from many of the CFOs we've talked to in the past, but uh, We'll be interested in hearing more about your career, and uh, that's where we usually like to start. Can you share with us perhaps three career experiences that help prepare you for a CFO role? I think first and foremost, you, you touched on the patents. I think my initial experience, both as an undergraduate student, as an engineer, and then working as an engineer, ended up being pretty important for me. Uh, one, because it helped me really develop a set of analytical skills that helped differentiate what I could deliver in the workplace once I made that transition into uh, finance roles, but as well just really understanding technology and and how all the pieces fit together and what it took to engineer and create a product and all the innovation there, you know, given that I've ultimately you know chosen to pursue a career path in Silicon Valley, really helped me have a foundational understanding of, of how tech companies work, which then has helped me you know really be effective as I've worked my way through different careers in finance and ultimately to the CFO role in being able to relate to marketing folks, sales, and ultimately how we sell that technology to customers. Second of all, international experience has been a very important, almost revelatory experience for me. Again, to your point about the, the patents that I have in Japan, when I graduated as an undergraduate, I actually took a job working for Sony in Japan in their digital electronics uh, organization. And this is back in the day where digital electronics was was a concept that people were just thinking about. So the idea of HD television was was just an early concept they were working on at this research center in Japan where I worked. 
And so they were doing all sorts of groundbreaking and cutting-edge work, which was very exciting. But working there not only gave me a chance to obviously practice my engineering skills, but I had to learn the Japanese language. I lived in a dormitory where all the new Japanese hires lived. And so learning how to operate in that Japanese culture, speaking Japanese fluently every day. And then later I had other career opportunities where I also worked overseas, uh, primarily in Europe. You know, Germany and France and the UK are each very distinct countries, different cultures, different ways of thinking about business, politics, everything. And of course you see that with the Brexit uh, vote. But that really helped me as I then started to work in companies myself that had operations overseas of having real understanding and empathy for the cultural differences uh, that exist both within a company and, of course, across your customer base and your supplier base. And I would say lastly, I, I was fortunate enough at one point in my career to have a role as general manager of a division of one of the companies I worked for. We had the good fortune of having some incredibly bright engineers that had some really clever ideas on how to reform the technology and move into a whole different market. And in the end, you know, that business ended up being very successful, and I really learned the power of you know, leveraging a, a team of bright individuals to step back and think about you know, what really should we be doing for a living and how do you manage and run a business? And, and that experience in particular as I've moved into the CFO role has been helpful because it allows me to really think every day the same way the CEO does about, you know, what's like to run this business and what can I do to be more helpful and more effective for that person. It's interesting. The first 10 years of your career, did you think of yourself as being on a CFO track? You know, that's an interesting question, and, and the answer, quite frankly, is no. I, when I went to business school after I worked as an engineer, I went to uh, Kellogg Graduate School of Management where I studied uh, marketing, uh, international management, and uh, finance. And I just picked up finance because it was just intuitive for me as uh, something, you know, having an analytical background. But as I looked for jobs coming out of business school, I couldn't find an interesting job in tech and marketing. This was the late 80s, and maybe other than Apple and Microsoft, none of the other tech companies really come to understand what marketing really meant. And so I took a role in a finance organization with the idea that, hey, at some point I'm going to bridge out of this and into something different. Um, and in fact, I did. As I mentioned earlier, I ended up in a general management role at one point, but different roles around the world and, and had different uh, positions. I think what I ultimately came to find is that I was very well suited to be a CFO as I looked at how CFOs that I worked for operated, and I thought a little bit about my skill set and what, what skills were really unique and differentiated where I could bring the most value in the organization. It was having this business and technology-focused point of view, and so it, it kind of came to me you know, in turn over that 10-year period where I worked in semiconductors, where by the end of my career, I realized at that company, I realized you know, I'm really best suited to be a CFO, even though perhaps I, at one point in my career, had thought that I wanted to lead a marketing or, or you know, potentially a, uh, an engineering organization. Yeah, so you had a number of earlier uh, tours of duty as a CFO, and what is the job, finally, that you wanted to uh, create for yourself at Proofpoint? What was going to be fulfilling for you, given all of what you've had uh, accomplished professionally? Sure. Now, that, that's a great question. You know, I... Um, I love being the CFO of a small tech startup and then helping work with the CEO, the leadership team, the venture capitalists, and trying my best to participate in creating a world-class franchise that stands the test of time. So prior to Proofpoint, I was at VMware, where when I joined, it was a $20 million business and roughly 150 people. And by the time I finished there, it was a billion-dollar-a-year company with you know thousands of people around the world. 
And at that point, the company had gotten to the size and scale where the, the CFO job inevitably involves into a job that's a little more, um, how should I say, high level, you know, a lot of meetings, interacting with other C-level executives. And, and that's not really what I love to do. I really love to be deeply immersed and hands-on in the business. And so I finished up my work at VMware. I took a brief period of time off. And then just through my journeys in the valley of looking at other companies that looked like they could use someone with my skill set, I had the good fortune of meeting the CEO of Proofpoint. And they were just at that point, again, a $20 million business that needed a, a CFO. And so I joined. And, and one of the things I like about it is it's a blank slate. And so it gives you that opportunity to, from scratch, build and drive an organization that's very much in your image, both the finance organization and the other administrative functions I typically run, but then also very much influence the culture of the company, you know, in indirect ways with the CEO ultimately owning the mainstream culture, but things about, you know, spending discipline and how we run our forecast processes and, you know, quarterly business reviews and all those things and making sure they're done in a way that, that I think is the right way to help the business scale efficiently and realize its fullest potential. And so that's, that's what I love to do, and that's what was exciting to me about joining Proofpoint. I'd like to get some sense of, since you've done this, you've been down this path before and you have scaled companies, but you've also uh, you've scaled the finance function. You've identified the skills that were required at a, you know, different milestones as the company grew. Can you give us some sense of um, how you've learned to prioritize hiring in the finance realm? Um, and I'll give you a better sense, Paul. I'm wondering is, okay, that's when I knew I had to get a full-time controller. That's when I knew – when you added those vital pieces and skill sets to the team. Yeah, so, so it's a great question, and it, it's interesting. One of the books that I've read over, over the last several years that I like quite a book that was um, – Malcolm Gladwell's book uh, called Outliers, and in it he talks about this idea of having a minimum requisite of 10,000 hours of doing a particular job before you're really truly expert at it. The one thing that is fundamentally true that I found is having a great corporate controller uh, on day one is critical, and I will say that I didn't do that the first time around, and I learned some important lessons. Um, you know, I understand accounting. I've done a lot of accounting in my days, but I'm not a CPA. You know, my, my role is more on the analytics side and kind of strategic thinking. And so I know I need a great partner in the, in the accounting side. And quite frankly, even if you are uh, a CFO with a strong accounting background, you want to have your time freed up so that you can help participate in other aspects of the leadership of the business. So I would say literally from day one, you, you need a great corporate controller who can put all the policies and procedures in place to make sure that the business runs like a clock, you know, the monthly and quarterly close cycle, you know, bringing in a third-party audit firm to, you know, make sure that that's all being taken care of. And again, it's not that I delegated entirely to, to that individual, but having someone I know I can rely on so that I can spend most of my time working with the executive team on thinking about key aspects of scaling the business. So with that said, I will say that in the early days, because you inherently can't afford it, I am the chief FP&A leader, and I hire one or two promising young uh, folks to come in and help me with everything from monthly, quarterly, annual planning to all the analytics work that we need to do to kind of sort out up and down what's going on in the business and provide information to the other leaders in the company. And so it's typically not until the company gets to be about 80 to 100 million where I'll bring in a vice president to head up the, the FP&A function. Uh, and at which point I've already built it out now in my image, so it kind of runs the way I want it to. And then they take over and, of course, make enhancements from there. Other key parts of the organization can vary. So 
in the first two companies I, I was the CFO, we did almost no M&A. At Proofpoint, we've done 14 transactions in the roughly nine years I've been here. So pretty early on, say about four, four and a half years into my tenure, I decided that being the, the chief acquisition officer just was taking too much of my time. And so I hired a great head of business development who then picked up from there. And again, it wasn't that it was completely delegated to that individual, but he was then able to spend all the hours required to go and cultivate relationships with earlier stage companies in the Valley and, and help us find and, and ultimately close on uh, uh, some of those acquisitions. And then lastly, you know, things like, you know, treasury and tax, the tax piece, quite frankly, I, I leave with the third party audit firm until we get big enough that, you know, the, the net operating loss carry forwards are large and material and we need to make sure we're accounting for those things carefully. And we're operating in enough states and international jurisdictions that the bill that I'm paying to a third party exceeds what it would otherwise be if I were to hire a full-time resource to take that on. And so, again, it depends a little bit on the scale of the company. But, you know, typically that will happen in the 80 to $100 million range where I'll bring in someone to head that up. So hopefully that gives you at least kind of a few uh, data points around um, how I think about architecting the organization as it scales. Great. Now, let's find out about Proofpoint and uh, about the, the marketplace out there. What exactly are its products and services? Sure. So Proofpoint is maybe at the simplest level. Uh, we handle email security for companies large and small around the world. And email security, simply put, is dealing with all those inbound threats that come in through email. And, you know, in the old days, it used to be, you know, an email trying to get you to buy a fake Rolex watch. But lately, it's included what people refer to as weaponized uh, emails that will include either a URL link or an attachment that has a virus that will infect your computer and wait to see you log into your bank account or some other access to important company confidential information or intellectual property, and then take that information and send it outside of the company unbeknownst to you. And then lastly, there's this new form of uh, threat called business email compromise where they'll send an email that appears to come from your CEO to, I don't know, say your corporate controller or, or maybe your AP clerk asking for them to wire money urgently at his or her behest. And companies have fallen for this left and right because it is so hard to tell that it's not really an email from your CEO and many people see that email and feel they should act on it urgently as, as well you often should when your CEO has an urgent action they'd like you to take. So Simply put, Proofpoint operates a system in the cloud that vets all of your email before it comes to your email server, and it removes all of that. And so over the years I've been with the company, we've grown quite rapidly, and today we currently service half of the Fortune 100, 29% of the Fortune 1000, and then we have a, a very, very large customer base in mid and, and smaller enterprise. So we serve all customers equally, both large and small, and you know, we're really excited about what we've managed to accomplish. We do compete with bigger players, uh, brand names that you've heard of, like uh, Cisco and Symantec. But our product is hands down better, and it's easy to measure it. You can just do a side-by-side -side comparison between our product and something from a better-known brand like the one I described. And ours consistently catches all of this malware in a way that these other solutions can't. Now, can you tell us what the key metrics are that you rely on today to reveal how the company's uh, performing? Sure. So, so we're a subscription business. So every customer basically buys our service on an annual basis. You know, they pay up front, and then at the end of the year, if they're happy with the service, they buy it again. 
If they're not, you know, maybe we lose that customer. And we are maniacally focused on the quality of the product and the customer service experience because business really scale financially in an effective manner. It's retaining those customers uh, that we bring on board. That's the key metric to make the model work. Uh, our, our cost to acquire new customers quite high. It can be as high as a, a number that's roughly equal to that first year of annual subscription between sales, marketing costs, the cost of the channel that will help us engage with the customer. So I can't really afford to churn that customer every year or my financial model will never scale you know, on the income statement or cash flow uh, basis. So with that said, the most important metric we watch is what we call the churn rate which is you know, the customers that we have that are up for renewal and which of those leave. And fortunately, given all the hard work that the folks at the company do, our churn rate is very low, and lower is obviously better. Um, but we, we have a dashboard that focuses on both that churn rate on a week-to-week, month-to-month basis, and then a list of the customers that we think are at risk. And literally, um, both the CEO, myself, the head of sales, all the members of the executive team, we all play an active role in reaching out to those customers that are at risk to convince them to stay. And, you know, we're not perfect. We make mistakes. And when you sit in the middle of somebody's email flow, even glitches can be amplified, you know, with the workforce, as I'm sure, you know, everyone listening can attest. If the email system goes down, you got a lot of very talented, highly paid people sitting on their hands with not much to do. Uh, the second one is the recurring value of new subscriptions coming in and how the sales team is doing in terms of building pipeline and close rates around that. And then the last one is a real-time system to measure uh, our spending uh, on a literally week-to-week basis. Now, we always like to ask, Paul, for sort of a uh, an aha moment or a moment of strategic insight that led you to drive change within the organization or maybe look at the uh, the business in a, in a different way, point your team in another direction, whatever it may have been. Um, but it's sort of a moment of strategic insight that finance experiences, given its view into the business. Is there anything you can comes to mind over the path of your career? Sure. You know, you know it's interesting. If I go back to the time I spent in semiconductors, I'd, I'd been working for about four years, starting as a senior financial analyst and kind of working my way up. And I, uh, I was given the honor of running the financial planning organization for the company. And it, the whole process of forecasting for the company was something that was very frustrating for everyone in the business. Because of the importance of having accuracy and understanding real-time trends, we literally forecast the business every month. So once a month, not only the finance team, but all the senior leaders and managers in the company would log into these laborious and painful systems and update all their forecasts. And so it literally took the entire finance team and leadership of the company one full week every month just to simply update the forecast. So when I took this over, uh, I, of course, just continued the status quo because why not? That's how we've always done things. And one thing that I realized quite quickly in the role was that the, the system wasn't accurate. You know, we, we'd roll up these forecasts. They were hugely conservative. You know, everyone suggested every single time I'd roll up a forecast, it would kind of suggest we were going out of business. And I knew that wasn't the case. So I developed my own planning tool where I would kind of second-guess everyone's inputs and uh, come up with my own view of the business, which was then remarkably accurate. And so after several months of this, I was sitting in my cube one day waiting for the roll-ups to come in, knowing that they would be of little value as usual. And it just started to dawn on me all the hundreds and thousands of man hours that were being used for inputs that we were basically going to discard. And the CFO who I worked for understood that as well. 
And so I went to him and I said, yeah, why don't we just stop doing this? I mean, literally, you know, we're always like any tech company. There, there are resources we can't afford to hire because, you know, we just, you know, their requests always exceed the number of resources available to supply. Think of the amount of effective resources that we would give back to the company if we just have stopped having everybody input into the system. And I just develop a little more sophisticated version of this lightweight tool, and we just handle it that way. So he thought it was an interesting idea, and so I, I enhanced my tool. We spent you know another month or two on it. I convinced him that it was sufficient, and we just shut the whole old system down. And so it was that aha moment of you know it wasn't just that hey you know you can challenge the status quo. It was a bigger idea than that, which is you know finance needs to be really thoughtful about how it consumes resources in the company for the benefit of things that finance thinks are important because the drain on resources in the company to serve those ends can be significant and debilitating and those resources could be used in far better ways. And so, you know, we literally, and it was probably one of the most popular projects that was ever done in the 10 years that I worked at that company. I kind of became an instant celebrity, but more importantly, it then gave me the currency as I worked with the leadership team to get other more important projects done in the company because I'd done something for them, which has saved them huge amounts of hours working on a system that everybody knew was sort of a road to nowhere. And given that time back to them, they were all the more encouraged and excited to collaborate with me on, on other projects that were, were important. Okay, we're going to move now to the mentoring round. We want to ask uh, several quick questions uh, so you can offer some advice and inspire other finance leaders. What's one thing that's exciting you about finance and business today? Uh, I, I would say one of the most exciting things for me is the revolution in the data analytics tools that are available to empower you know, even the most relatively junior members of your uh, financial planning teams to take vast amounts of data and analyze it in relatively simple and seamless ways without having to have a degree in computer programming and, and, and spot really compelling trends that, that help you really rethink what you're doing in the business. And so th those tools, those platforms, and the availability and the degree to which they've been developed so that, so that you know, people without sophisticated backgrounds and experience can use them is, you know, to me, a very exciting trend right now. What do you wish someone had told you at the start of your CFO career? that it's it's a lot more about the people and it's a lot less about the numbers. So on a personal level, what personal habit do you believe has contributed to your own professional success? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I I would have to say probably my interpersonal skills and, and I will say that by telling you that uh, my interpersonal skills, as you can imagine, having been an engineering undergraduate student and then working as an engineer, that was certainly not my strong suit. But when I made that bridge over into the finance world after I graduated from business school, and I started really just you know hunkering down on analytics and, and you know doing the best work I could do using my engineering background and my newfound knowledge of business and accounting, I started looking around at the, at the people who one were people I aspired to be, whether they were senior leaders in the finance organization, a couple of the CFOs who I worked for who, who were mentors to me. I, I think it is really a defining element of truly successful finance leaders. Paul, would you have a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? You know, I do. And it's, it's probably not a book that, you know, people would otherwise think to come from a 
a finance leader in the tech world, you'd probably be thinking that it would be Inside the Tornado or any one of a number of other books that uh, are often recommended to people who want to understand how, how tech companies evolve from startup to larger scale successful enterprises. But the one that I've found most interesting and, and I think is a great book is called Nothing Like It in the World. And it's a book by Stephen Ambrose, and it's basically a telling of the story of the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad. So it's a, it's a historical novel, and it involves all the famous people who ultimately financed and built the railroad and all the things that they did to get that accomplished in a remarkably short period of time. And, and I just there are so many different anecdotes and stories in there that I think are so relevant to finance leaders and how you have to think about your job whether it's how you're financing the company uh, or how you're actually thinking about making decisions about trade-offs on projects and how you're managing the business. Finance thought leaders don't go anywhere. We're about to ask our finance leader guest for their business priorities over the next 12 months. But first, permit us 30 seconds to thank our sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Okay, our final question. What are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months? Okay, that's a good question. Um, I would say that for, for, for me, it's uh, it's a couple things. As always, my number one priority is making sure I hit my commitments to the investor community. So whether it's hitting the revenue, the profitability targets, that is job one. Because ultimately, if we don't accomplish that as a company, the stock price suffers. And now more than ever in the age of activism, that can create some quite problematic results for the company. But I would also say that uh, you know ultimately it has an impact on employee morale when people see the stock price drop and you know you you haven't performed and uh, ultimately people despite having worked hard now feel like they they failed. So setting realistic goals and making sure we hit them is is critical as I think about any 12-month horizon. But I think beyond that, you know the other thing that is always on my mind is you know what can we do to fundamentally change what we're doing as a business to to reinvent the industry and remake what we do to set ourselves up for longer-term success. So that might feel like more of a longer-term answer, but in any given 12-month period, we are always looking, whether it's fundamental changes in what we're doing in product development, changes in how we think about how we engage with our customers to improve that renewal rate, you know, lower that churn rate for the customer, or an acquisition that can, when combined with our products, fundamentally change how we can compete in the marketplace. That's always a top priority for me as I think about you know what I'm trying to get accomplished in, in any given 12-month period. Paul Oville, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it.
Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. At CFO Thought Leader, we wanted to give you, the listener, some added clout when it comes to selecting next season's CFO guests. We call it Listener's Choice. And in the months ahead, our Listener's Choice guests will enjoy some added box office clout as we advance the CFOs you most want to hear from into next season's CFO lineup. To learn more about CFO Thought Leader's Listener's Choice, visit us at cfothoughtleader.com or go ahead and email me at jack at cfothoughtleader.com. Hey, one last thing. It's no secret when we originated CFO Thought Leader, it was with iPhone users in mind. Android users, we have neglected you. And so to make amends, we just released a CFO Thought Leader mobile app just for you. It's now ready for download on Google Play and Amazon Android Markets. No matter what world you're part of, thank you for listening. <laughs>